joined you guys. It's just a real privilege to have Adrian with us this morning. He comes uh, uh, with an evangelistic gift in particular and is going to help us to think about uh, what God would have us do to join in with his mission in the world. So I think it would just be great if we could pray and open our hearts to receive uh, what I think is going to be a fresh word to us this morning and that's going to do us good. Yeah? Uh, So, Lord, we pray for Adrian. Lord, we pray again that your spirit would fall upon him. Lord, we look to him this morning as the one through whom we expect your words to come, uh, not because of who he is, but because of who you are and what you've given to him. And we do want to receive that this morning. So help us, Lord. Make our hearts sensitive. Lord, we want ourselves to be good soil on which the seed of your word would land and return a good harvest. Help us to be that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Great. Well, it's wonderful uh, to be here. Uh, Thank you for your welcome. And for those of you who don't know me, I thought I'd just introduce myself by saying that uh, when I was 16 years old, I had lots of little ambitions like you do when you're 16. But really and truly, they all fed into one mega ambition. When I was 16, more than anything else, I wanted to be cool. I wanted people to look at me and think, oh, he's cool. That was my whole goal in life. And by the summer of 1984, I believed that I had finally become cool for one very good reason. I had some completely white leather shoes that were identical to that sensational, those worn by that sensational pop duo, Wham. (laughs) Now, does anyone here this morning remember Wham? Please raise a hand. Oh, my goodness, it's like a Wham church. That's amazing. (laughs) Some whole blocks raised their hands. That's great. Um, Anyway, um, at this, uh, I should also say that I also had some light blue trousers that were, again, I'll have you know, identical to those worn by Andrew Ridgely and George Michael in the video to the smash hit song, Club Tropicana. Folks, it was at this point in my life that I discovered a different band called The Smiths. And The Smiths, yeah, The Smiths had a lead singer called Morrissey. Now, does anybody here remember Morrissey? Raise a hand. Okay, the same people. Um, And um, now, um, Morrissey, the lead singer of The Smiths, had this hairstyle that was called a flat top. Now, I know this is going to be difficult for you to imagine... Looking at me now, but back in the 80s, I'll have you know, I used to have hair. I used to have a full head of hair. Back in the 80s, I had so much hair, I could even choose a style. I had options back then. And so I chose to gel my hair up into a flat top style in honour of my hero, Morrissey. And I also had on this t-shirt that I used to wear and this uh, World War I style trench coat thing that you used to have to wear all the year round. I still don't know why, but that was all part of the outfit. And, um, but I didn't have the full outfit because I, you know, I, I, I was in transition from one band to another. So I basically, I, I had on this Smith's outfit, but I still had on my light blue trousers and my completely white leather shoes. So if you'd seen me hanging around down the t- town centre with my mates, I was basically Smith's from the waist up and wham from the waist down. <laughs> anyway, as we were hanging out down Wimbledon Town Centre uh, one Friday night, we used to hang out at, not right outside McDonald's, so that it looks sad, but slightly to one side. <laughs> we're not where we were last Friday. Look, we moved. 
And hanging out down, down the town centre with, with, with 20 or so of my friends, there was this new girl in our clique. I mean, she wasn't yet fully accepted as a clique member. She was kind of a provisional membership girl. You know, you can stand near us. We may talk to you. You can stand there. And this new girl, Caroline Payne, one Friday night, she says out loud, you know, during a silence, she says out loud to all 20 of us, she says, oh, she says, how would you all like to come with me to my church on Sunday evening? And there was a silence, uh, just like there was then. And um, <laughs> the reason for the silence was because None of us went to church. And none of us had ever met anyone our age who did. And so out of sheer curiosity, we all said yes. (laughs) And so we went to her church. Turns out her church was Wimbledon Baptist Church. So we all went to the 6.30 evening service at uh, Wimbledon Baptist Church. And uh, this was all completely new to me. I'd never experienced anything even vaguely like what just happened in the previous hour of our lives here. And so I was introduced to evangelical Christianity. And to cut a very, very long story short, uh, several months later, on the 14th of April, 1985, I gave my life to Christ. And this was a very exciting and unexpected development in my life. And so I went back the following day to school. I happened to be in the lower sixth form at school. And uh, I just started to uh, tell uh, people what had happened. I mean, some of them asked me what had happened, and some of them I told. And I went on a series of kind of adventures uh, of faith. And uh, I hadn't, didn't really know anything about how to live the Christian life, so I knew that you were supposed to pray. But I didn't know how to do that, but I knew that in Winnie the Pooh, um, he used to kneel by the end of his bed and pray. So I thought, well, that's obviously what you do. So I'd kneel uh, by the end of my bed, and I'd pray, obviously for my friends. And so I'd pray something like this. I'd pray, uh, dear God, uh, please today... When I'm in the lunch queue, may, and then I just think of somebody, may Nick Pimlot come and stand next to me and I pray I have a chance to tell him all about Jesus and how wonderful you are. Amen. And so I'd then be in the lunch queue and you know, Nick Pimlot obviously nowhere to be seen and so you know, queue gets shorter and shorter and shorter and then at the last moment, whoa, hi Nick. How spooky is that? Like in the prayer. I mean, this prayer thing works. So I'd then pray it again, and I'd be able to talk to Nick Pimlock, and then two days later I'd pray again uh, for Anthony Van Der Steen. When I'm on the bus to the rugby match, may Anthony Van Der Steen sit next to me, and may I talk to him about Jesus. And basically every time I prayed one of these prayers, it worked. <laughs> for two years. So two or three times a week, every week for two years. And as you imagine, after two years of answered prayer... My faith was absolutely sky high, and people in the school were becoming Christians, and the teachers became aware of this kind of phenomenon. So originally they kind of gave us house assemblies, then they gave us whole school, it wasn't a Christian school, but they gave us whole school assemblies. And then towards the end, in the final year, it got really out of hand, and I remember one double period of A-level history... And uh, the, the head of the history department, who wasn't a Christian, he starts the... We're supposed to be doing Tudors and Stuarts, right? You know, like you do. And um, he starts the double period of A-level history and saying, Adrian, how would you all like to tell us today about speaking in tongues? <laughs> I'm like, sir, we're supposed to be doing Tudors and Stuarts. Well, you know, as far as I know, the Tudors and Stuarts didn't speak in tongues. But Anyway, um, the, 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 ma- many of the boys became Christians. It was all very exciting. And then the high point of my school career was um, just before we left, just before we got our A-level results, when my friend, James Lewison, accused Julian McCorkadale of only becoming a Christian because it was trendy. (laughs) And I'm like, yes! We have completely reversed the culture. Now, 
Since leaving school, I've continued to share Christ with people over the last 20 years, and I have seen a number of people come to faith in Christ. And you might listen to that little intro and think, yeah, that was a reasonable introduction, that was okay to hear a little bit of your story. You know what I think when I look back on my life? I think that, humanly speaking, the reason why I am standing on this stage today, and the reason why all of you are listening to me, is because one 15-year-old girl took courage in her hands one Friday night, not right outside McDonald's, but slightly to one side, took courage in her hand. She said to all 20 of her friends, how would you all like to come with me to my church on Sunday evening? Caroline Payne communicated the gospel in her world. And that is what I've been asked to talk to you guys about this morning. How you and I can, day by day, month by month, year by year, how we can communicate the gospel in our world. So let's start by going on another journey. You ready for this? Come with me, if you will, to Charlotte, North Carolina, in the sweltering summer of 1934. For there, in a tin hut with sawdust as a carpet, an evangelist by the name of Dr. Mordecai Ham is preaching every night. And for a whole month, local Christians have been inviting one particular 16-year-old farm boy who loved baseball to come to these evangelistic meetings. But for a whole month, this 16-year-old has been saying no, saying that he wants nothing to do with this nonsense. Folks, it was at this moment that Albert McMakin made his mark upon world history. You see, Albert had already built up a friendship with the teenager as they worked along inside each other at Albert's dad's farm, where Albert's dad grew prize-winning tomatoes. <laughs> Albert asked the teenager, incidentally, as I tell the story, would you like me to attempt the Carolinan accent? Yeah, yeah? okay, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to do that. Um, Albert asked the teenager, why don't you come out and hear our fighting preacher? I won't carry on because I get carried away and it distracts from the, uh, distracts from the, from the, the, the whole message. Anyway, um, the, the teenager replied, um, is he a fighter? I like a fighter. Then Albert threw in the added incentive that if the teenager agreed to come, Albert would allow the teenager to drive the McMakin family vegetable truck to the meeting. <laughs> Folks, the offer of the truck swung it. And so the teenager agreed to come. He drove the making family vegetable truck to the meeting. He sat at the back. He was totally captivated by the evangelist's message. And he listened to these messages. He came every single night for a month. And then after a month, he was the very last of 400 people who went to the front to receive Christ. A tailor by the name of J.D. Previtt came alongside him and prayed with him to receive Christ. Folks, that teenager is still alive. And he's now 92 years old. But over the last 65 years, he's probably led more people to Christ than anybody else who's ever lived. And over those 65 years, he's probably talked to more people face to face about Jesus than anyone has ever spoken to anyone about anything. And his name is Dr. Billy Graham. Folks, few people on earth will ever have heard of Albert McMakin. But in heaven, Albert is going to look out at millions of people 
Who found Christ? Through Billy Graham. And Albert McMakin is going to reflect forever on the results of one moment of boldness when he said to a 16-year-old farm boy who loves baseball, why don't you come out and hear our fighting preacher? Folks, all Albert McMakin did was he communicated the gospel in his world. But you know what? That enabled Billy Graham to communicate the gospel to the whole world. And when I hear stories like that, I think to myself, man, there is nothing else as exciting to live for. Because you know what? Every single one of us here, we might not ever be a Billy Graham, but every single one in this building, everyone who can hear my voice, everyone who listens to this recording, every one of us can be an Albert McMakin. I hear stories like that and I think there's nothing else as exciting to live for. And you know what? You and I helping our world to hear the gospel, to escape from hell, to get to heaven, helping people on that journey, that seems like a pretty exhilarating idea. And what's more, I'm sure that in a great church like this, we can all agree that in the Bible it is something that we're called to do. So here's my question when I think about it. I think to myself, okay, theoretically, I am excited about this thing of communicating the gospel in my world, and... I also believe that in the Bible, God has called me to do it, so it's got to be the case that God's going to help me if I do what he wants me to. So my question is this. Why am I so reluctant to communicate the gospel in my world? Why am I, and so many of us Christians, reluctant to communicate the gospel to our world? Now, it seems to me that the answer to that question is when it comes to this particular bit of the Christian life called evangelism, well... Many of us live in what I call the valley of disappointment. So let me just show you a picture of a mountain range. The experience of many Christians, in my view, looks like this. There you were at the start, the extreme uh, right-hand side, as you look, of your journey in life. And let's say, I I don't know when you became a Christian, but let's just imagine, I'm going to guess, that you were brought up in a Christian family, and at some point in your teenage years, perhaps... Your faith came alive. I don't know, you went to a Bible week or you went to Soul Survivor or you went to some Scripture Union mission or, I don't know, you prayed with your mum. Anyway, the whole thing became real. And let's say you were 17 years old and you started to climb what I call the hill of expectation because you had your best friend at school and you've known them for years and all of a sudden the whole Christian thing was real. That your mum and dad's faith suddenly, I really believe this stuff. Jesus, you're real. And so obviously you talk to your friend and they talk to you and you start to climb the hill of expectation because you're thinking, hey, maybe maybe it's not just by chance that I'm best friends with you. Maybe what's happened to me is going to spill over into your life and they come to the church youth group. And they come along to different things and you think, this is very exciting. You start to climb the hill of expectation. But you know what? Where is that person today? Are they in church somewhere really going for it as a Christian? Oh, no, I don't think they are. Um, because actually what happened is their interest kind of blew over or it fizzled out or maybe they did pray a prayer but it kind of fizzled out into nothing. And so we were a little bit disappointed about that and we went into a little trough of disappointment. Can you see it's not very big but a little trough but of course because you guys are good Christians you didn't stay there for long. No, throw your story on, I don't know, a couple of years or maybe five, ten years. I don't know, maybe now you're in your first term at university Or maybe you've just started a new job here in Oxford. You moved to Oxford, started a new job. And this time it's different. Because you meet someone and they are genuinely, truly interested in your Christian faith. They raise the subject with you. 
they ask you questions. You invite them to evangelistic events, they actually come. They come. Like, yeah, I'll pick you up. And they're there. They get in the car. They come. It's just amazing. It's, you know, they come with you. And so you start to climb what I call the mountain of expectation. Because you think, this is it. I can see what's going to happen. Because actually, truth be told, you're thinking to yourself, truth is, I've now been a Christian for four years, or I've been a Christian now for eight years, or I've been a Christian now for 13 years, or I've been a Christian now for 20 years, but I've never actually led one of my friends to Christ before. But now, I can see, I'm finally going to break my duck. And at the top of the mountain of expectation, your friend is on Alpha. (laughs) But what actually happened next? Oh, you know, they dropped out of the Alpha course and the whole thing kind of blew over and fizzled out and they moved away or you moved away or, I don't know, something came up. And so perhaps, understandably, we slid down into what I call the Valley of Disappointment. But folks, the significant thing about the Valley of Disappointment is that so many Christians live there. And when you're in the Valley of Disappointment, it makes it that much harder to kind of get all excited and raise your energy the next time, having been disappointed. Now, folks, what happens, in my opinion, in the Valley of Disappointment is hugely significant. Because in the Valley of Disappointment, what Christians do is they decide what their gifting is. Mm. Because you look back on your life and think, let me just review my evangelistic career. 13 years of efforts, absolutely nothing to show for it. However, you know what? There are loads of other equally biblical, equally important things that Christians are supposed to do, that you can do and are called to do within the life of the church. And the difference is that when I do those things, I actually see some measurable, definable, tangible results. So over here, absolutely nothing to show from my efforts in evangelism. Over here. So for example, let's just imagine that I'm part of your church, for example. And let's imagine it is my job to, to put the chairs out in these amazingly symmetrical rows. <laughs> I mean, they are perfect. I mean, somebody's got a ruler. I mean, it's just awesome. So you can always worship God as a trigonometry. <laughs> now let's imagine that's my job. And let's imagine I do that every single Sunday. After two years of doing this, one of the elders comes up to me and says, thanks. Now, let's just review what's happened in my chair ministry. (laughs) First of all, every week, I have the benefit of knowing that the people are not sitting on the floor because of me. And I'm now receiving biannual feedback from the elders. (laughs) So I tried evangelism, but I didn't see any benefit, basically nothing to show for it. But over here, my chair ministry... I can see that that... Now, obviously, I'm exaggerating. But you know what? That's what happens all across the body of Christ so often. And so, I I don't know what you think about that, but let's just think, what was it that we so wanted to happen at the very top of the mountain of expectation that when it didn't happen, it caused us to get disappointed? You know what? The answer is, at the end of the day, our friend didn't become a Christian. Or even if we did see someone become a Christian, it kind of fizzled out, or maybe we haven't seen as many as we'd hoped. Now... I just want to put it to you this morning, if I may. Here's my mega thing. That according to the Bible, success in evangelism actually isn't all about people becoming Christians. 
Now, before you respond to that statement, just have a look at this scale. I'm going to suggest to you that everybody that you know, everybody here in Oxford, everybody in Britain, is somewhere on this scale. They're somewhere between being at the bottom of the scale, someone who has no awareness of God, and somebody who's at the very top of the scale, which is probably the majority of people here this morning who've already given their lives to Christ. What I want to suggest that according to the Bible, success in evangelism is, is meeting people at whatever point they may be on this scale when you meet them, and through your encounter with them, their picture of God and their picture of the church is slightly improved. So if you meet somebody, your next door neighbour, and they're at point one on the scale, they move away two years later, they're at point two or point three. The Bible's suggesting that is success in evangelism. You meet somebody at work, they're in the cubicle next to you, they're at point five. Three years later, they get a relocation to Bradford or somewhere, They're at point eight when they leave. I'm saying that is success in evangelism. Now, why should any of us think that that is success in evangelism? Only if the Bible says that evangelism is a process. I want to suggest to you that not only is the teaching of the New Testament that evangelism is a process, but that one of the main things that Jesus taught us about evangelism is that evangelism is a process. Now, I could teach that point out of several, several bits in the Gospels, but I'm going to just choose the most famous, the most celebrated example of Jesus, the master personal evangelist at work. It is, of course, the story of Jesus and the woman at the well in John chapter 4. So if you want to have a look at that in the Bible, if you have one, equally the words will appear on the screen. But let me, if you're not familiar with the story, let me give you a bit of a background to it. Jesus is on a journey from the south of the country to the north of the country. He, he chooses to go uh, through uh, uh, in the, the, the bit in the middle that we would call the West Bank. He called it Samaria. And he goes through uh, Samaria and he discovers that in this town called Sychar, uh, there is a woman uh, at the well. And uh, he strikes up a woman, uh, strikes up a, a, a conversation, I should say. He strikes up a conversation with this woman who's at the well. And he starts by asking a fairly, well, he, the question he asks is, um, can I have a glass of water? Okay, so that's the question. And um, whenever I read this story, I am always absolutely amazed at the speed of Jesus' progress. Because he starts the conversation by saying, can I have a drink of water? And within the space of 30 verses, the whole town is coming out to hear the gospel. And I think, how do you do that? How do you say, can I have a drink of water? And within the space of 30 verses, like everybody, the whole of Oxford is marching down the high street saying, what must I do to be saved? I mean, how do you do that? And so obviously, because this is Jesus, the master evangelist at work, I reread the passage and I've got my highlighter pens for different themes. I've got my lime green. I've got orange. I've got yellow. I've got blue. And I'm looking for the key. What is the key? What is the key to evangelism? And of course, as I'm going through it, As you read the story, lo and behold, just so happens that in the conversation, Jesus says to this woman, oh, you know what? What you just said is true because you've had five husbands and the man that you're now living with is not your husband. And of course, it's a direct hit. And so what I always expect will happen afterwards is that as the guys kind of, as Jesus debriefs with the disciples after this amazing success in Sikar, I always imagine that the conversation, the debrief, should go something like this. Now, it, I, I, I picture everything in the New Testament through the lens of Franco Zeffirelli's 1977 TV miniseries, Jesus of Nazareth. If you've not seen this, let me just inform you that in Jesus of Nazareth, all the conversations that Jesus has with the disciples are over the shoulder. 
They walk along the road. Jesus is walking along, and he talks like this. And the disciples follow in a kind of red arrows formation like this. And so here's how I think it should go in, in, in John chapter 4. So Jesus is walking along, and Jesus should say, uh, guys, why do you think it was that we hit such a home run at Sikar today? And then maybe, I don't know, Peter maybe says, oh, well, Rabbi, uh, the reason it went so well at Sikar is because um, you had one of your words of knowledge. And Jesus should say, well, yes, Peter, I think you'll find it was rather a good one. (laughs) But actually, when you read it in your actual Bible, that's not what he says. When you read it in your actual Bible, he says this. He says, thus, the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Now, why does he say that? I think he says that. Because in the conversation that he's just had with the woman, this woman has said something in the conversation. That in all my 20-odd years of trying to share Christ with those who don't yet know him, no non-Christian has ever said anything to me even approaching what this woman said when she said to Jesus, I know that the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. (laughs) Then Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. Now, folks, here is how I view John chapter 4 in terms of football. Jesus is like a centre forward. And the ball is out on the wing with the winger. The opposition goalkeeper has inexplicably left his goal and wandered upfield in a highly irresponsible way. Imagine the ball comes over from the winger. Jesus finds the ball lands near the penalty spot and Jesus is therefore presented with an open goal. Now have a look at John chapter 4. Jesus arrives at the well. There is a woman at the well the woman says I am waiting for the Messiah to come Jesus hears these words you're waiting for the Messiah to come I am the Messiah and so he just says I who speak to you am he devil nil Jesus won. And away win in Sikha. <laughs> Folks, what am I trying to say? This woman is not at point one on the scale. She's left that long ago. She's sailed past point two. She's sailed past point three. She's right up at the top of the scale in nosebleed territory. She already believes the Bible. She can have quite a sophisticated conversation about worship. Oh, should we be worshipping over there? Or do you think we should be worshipping? No, she, she already wants to worship God. She believes in God. She believes the Old Testament is true. She believes the Bible. She's right up at the top of the scale. And so the thing that Jesus obviously reflects on, isn't it amazing, as he talks to the guys leaving, that, you know, that, that saying that we all know so well in our agricultural society that one person sows and somebody else reaps, and probably, as we're walking through this field, probably somebody sowed the seed, but a different person will reap. You know, we didn't sow the seed into her. We'd never met her before. We'd not been to Sikar before. And Jesus is thinking, wow, isn't that amazing? Even the woman at the well, the one who's the outcast in the town, the one that all the others have shunned, even the outcast woman who's leading the immoral life, even she knows a lot of God stuff. Even she knows the Bible because the prophets have sown the word of God in Samaria over centuries. Even the immoral woman knows a lot of Bible. So, you know, one sows and another reaps. We just turn up and we just reaped. 
Evangelism is a process. That's his point. Bruce Milne, in his commentary on John's Gospel, says the same thing. He says this, Bruce Milne on John says this, as Jesus, this is his comment on this verse, as Jesus has just demonstrated in his winning of the Samaritan woman, the time for reaping is at hand. All the generations of preparation within the life of Israel, the witness of the seers, the prophets, the priests and the leaders, culminating, Bruce Milne says, in the ministry of John the Baptist, have brought the harvest to fruition. When Jesus says, one sows and another reaps, verse 37, he's probably thinking specifically of John the Baptist, who ministered recently in the area. Chapter 3, verse 23. So Bruce Milne is saying it was actually John that sowed the seed, and Jesus is the one who reaped. So Jesus' conclusion from the episode is evangelism is a process of sowing and reaping. It's a process that takes time. Now, this is good news. In fact, all the analogies that Jesus used for evangelism, which incidentally were sowing, farming, searching for lost items, and fishing, all of these processes all take time. Folks, If you and I were to accept the idea that evangelism is a process, it would take off us all the self-imposed pressure that we have been living under. Because if it's a process, every single one in this room can get involved. We can be involved in a process. If you're only asking me to be involved in a process, I can be involved in a process. And so there's tremendous liberty in this. Because, you see, if you do take someone from point one to point two, then that really is successful evangelism. Because evangelism, by definition, according to Jesus, is a process. If you have brought someone from point five to point nine, the fact that they haven't reached point ten, that's not the point. The point is you've been involved in a process, and that's what evangelism is. It's a process. So let me try and quantify it. Let's say, for example, there are 300 of us here in this building this morning who, 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 are, who are Christians... And uh, just for the sake of making the maths easy, let's imagine that on average across the entire congregation, let's imagine that each of us have helped 10 people during our Christian life to get closer to faith in Christ than when we first met them. So that's 300 times 10. That means we represent 3,000 people, many of whom live in Oxford, 3,000 people who perhaps haven't yet come to know Christ, but we know them by name, and they are definitely closer to faith in Christ than when we first met them. You know what? Even though we live in England, we could become a little bit encouraged about that. <laughs> I mean, obviously not too much. We, we must guard against the dangers of emotionalism. <laughs> All things in moderation, particularly here in Oxford. But 3,000 people. I mean, that's quite a lot of people closer to Jesus than we first met them. What this means is that you really can go ahead and communicate the gospel in your world and feel like you're a success at doing it. Because according to the Bible, you are. So let's just think about the practicalities of this. I'm going to close with just three areas of your life where we can just think about some of the practicalities. If we're going to communicate the gospel in our world, let's just think about the different bits of our world, the different bits of our life. Firstly, leisure time. Now I'd like to ask you all a simple question. How many of you here this morning enjoy doing what you enjoy doing? Just raise a hand. Should be everybody if you're a human being. Great. Okay. How many of you find you have energy for what you enjoy doing? Yeah, of course. What do I mean? Let me see if I can explain. Let's imagine that you, when you're at your most tired and you're most exhausted, you have come in from work, you have finally got the kids to bed. I mean, you're downstairs, you're sitting in front of the TV, you know your kids aren't really in bed. You can hear them bouncing on their beds. They've told you that they've done their teeth. You know they haven't done, but you're kidding yourself. 
and you're sitting there in front of the TV and you're so tired and it's been such a hard day that you can't even see what's on the screen. The screen's too far away. But through the slits in your eyes, you're there with the channel holler. <laughs> I put it to you at that moment. If the phone rings and you can answer the phone without moving, if there is someone on the end of that phone and they say, would you like to comment? And then they mention a particular activity or interest of yours for that one particular thing. You feel energy for that one particular thing that they've just mentioned. My question is, what is your one particular thing? Because I don't know. For our host Steve here, it could be line dancing, for example. <laughs> for all I know. But you might, you might, you might not want to go line dancing with Steve. You might think that's embarrassing. Well, so what's your thing? You know, I don't know, for somebody, here, for somebody here it'll be upholstery. For somebody else it'll be learning to speak conversational French. For somebody else it'll be playing basketball. For somebody else it'll be badminton. For somebody else it'll be, I don't know, my mum's just started doing this Italian evening class that she's always wanted to do and now she's 70, she's finally going to learn Italian. Whatever it is, whatever your one particular thing is. Now here's the interesting aspect. Right now, the person who is sitting next to you, their thing would not even vaguely interest you. But your thing, oh. So there are people, aren't there, who like military history. And I've got all my soldiers in little rows. And you've got all your soldiers in little rows. And I've got my marble. And you've got your marble. And then I roll my marble. I knock over some of your little men. And then you roll your marble. You knock over some of my little men. And there are some people who look at that and they think... That's sad. <laughs> That's sad. Because it's just toy soldiers. You know what we want to do? We want to reenact the whole thing in real life. <laughs> and these people, they dress up in chain mail and armour and they get in their Volvos and they drive down to Wiltshire on Saturdays. <laughs> drive down to Wiltshire on Saturdays, come off the A303 near Stonehenge. <laughs> And they get out of the car, you and your mate, and you put on your visor and you've got your armour and you, get, you, you kind of slash away and your mate slashes back like this. And then after about five minutes, your mate falls over. He says, oh, whoa, whoa, thrice woe, thou hast slain me, thrice woe. <laughs> and then you get up five minutes later, you have a big hug and you say, that was great. Let's do it again next Saturday. <laughs> That's their thing. My question is, what is your thing? I was going to the shop the other day with a colleague of mine. I was just going down to get a sandwich in, in Fulham, where I live. And he's on his mobile phone while we're walking along to the shop. And he finishes the call. Now, this is not an exaggeration. He finishes the call. He stops in the street and he goes like this. He goes, he finishes the call. He goes, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and I, I have to stop as well. And I, you know, I, I can't not comment. So I said, well, um, What's happened? He said, yes. So-and-so has become an Apple Mac user. Yes! yes. <laughs> yeah, this is a guy. This is a guy who will only refer to Microsoft as the dark side. <laughs> That's his thing. But you know what? There's one thing that you are passionate about and there are other people who live in Oxford and in the surrounding villages and towns and they are passionate about the same thing. Now here's the amazing thing. They would genuinely like to meet you. 
Because if they met you, then you could talk about this particular French novelist that you're both into. Or the fact that you're into this particular type of music. Or this particular type of technology. Or whatever interest or activity it is. You could go fishing together. You could go rollerblading or whatever it is. Folks, here's the brilliant news. You can communicate the gospel in your world and have the time of your life while you're doing it. This is brilliant. The good news, therefore, for those of you who are in Christian leadership is... That getting Christians to do evangelism, therefore, is no longer kind of whipping them, saying, come on, you know you've got to do evangelism. Go, get out there. Go, get out there. Get out there. Go, get out there. I've got other verses where that one came from. Go on. You no longer have to do the whipping thing. Instead, what you can say as a Christian leader... Is you can simply, this is what we do at Christchurch London. Okay? In our church, over the last five years, we've seen 197 people come to faith in Christ. And we baptised 165. And how has that happened? Well, here's how it starts. With a small group leader, we have 52, 42 small groups. And they basically, the leaders just say, okay, sit down one-on-one with someone in the group and say, what do you enjoy doing? And usually the response is, is it a trick question? And the leader has to then persuade that it's a genuine, you actually genuinely want to know. And, they, and, they, and you said, what do you enjoy doing? And then the person says, well, I've never told anybody in church before. And you said, well, well what is it? And they said, well, it's, um, it's motorbike maintenance. And then small leader says, great, guess what? There are people who live near you and they are also interested in motorbike maintenance. Let us now go online. Okay, so we both sit down, we open a laptop type it in oh look there are 17 different groups in your area of guys who gather on different nights of the week and they all do motorbike maintenance in workshops and garages and so if you went along then you could talk to them about whatever you guys talk about like revs or cylinders or pistons or whatever it is you guys talk about and that's how we've done it it's just so simple really And what it means is that for those of us in leadership, you can release people to do things that they actually want to do. Folks, you may see this heading leisure time and you may think, yeah, but hang on a minute. I don't have any leisure time. And that's, to be honest, I've got to be honest, that is my response when I see these words on the screen. Because many of us in this room would honestly say that right now we really are the busiest that we've ever been in our entire lives. I would say, for example, right now I am the busiest that I've ever been in my entire life. I am now 42 years old. Uh, I've been uh, an elder in a very busy church that has grown very quickly and uh, I have four kids I also have a wife and I'm the busiest but even I can find one evening a month what could you do with one evening a month I have a friend uh, who's a Christian called Onde Agogabi and if Onde were here on the platform with me today I gave him the microphone I'd say Onde tell the good people of Oxford how did you become a Christian this is what his story would be he would say well um when I was, he's a civil engineer, he said, uh, I used to go and play badminton with my partner, and uh, we went down the leisure centre, and so we're playing against this other couple, and um, Onde would say, uh, thing is, uh, we played the game of badminton, and I noticed that during the game, they didn't swear. And, you know, Onde thinks to himself, well, there's actually quite a lot of scope for swearing in badminton. Um, <laughs> you know, with the shuttlecock, can't you swish the air and whatnot? So at the end of the game, he goes to this couple, he says, look, I know this is a bit of a weird question, but just before we say goodbye, can I just ask you a question? This couple say, yeah. He said, I noticed that you don't swear. And the other couple say, uh, yeah, 
You got me. It's true, we don't swear. As it happens, me, me, me and my girlfriend, we're Christians, and yeah, we don't swear. And so this Christian couple invite Onday to come to the New Frontiers Regional Celebration. So it's not even an evangelistic event. During the worship, Onday is slain in the spirit. He falls to the ground in the worship, and he's converted on the floor, on the carpet, during the worship. So he would be an example of someone who went up the scale very quickly. (laughs) Because all he knows is that Christians don't swear, and that they play badminton. (laughs) Which is... Which is not very much to go on. <laughs> Next heading is those we work with. Uh, folks, I continually meet Christians who feel condemned that they don't witness on the job more than they do. Now, um, I used to work as a television presenter in, in a 24-hour newsroom. And if I had gone around whilst we were on air, uh, kind of merrily witnessing to all of my colleagues in the newsroom about Jesus, quite honestly, I would not have been doing my job very well. Nor, incidentally, through the medium of my job itself, which incidentally for me was broadcasting sports news, would it actually have been appropriate for me to communicate the gospel? But I very easily could have done. So, for example, one of the many things I used to do is I used to read the classified football results. So I could have said, Barclays Premiership. Arsenal 1, Manchester United, nil. Chelsea 2, West Ham United, nil. Everton won, but God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that if any of you listening to this broadcast should believe in him, you will not perish, but you can have eternal life. I could have said. (laughs) And if I had said that, I could have gone back to the church prayer meeting on Sunday night, the following night, and I could have said, I was pretty radical at work yesterday. And they would have said, oh, well, 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 what did you do at work yesterday? I could have have guessed which verse I managed to slip into the classified (laughs) footballers. And they said, well, uh, we don't know. Which verse was it? I say, John 3.16. They said, oh, wow, you're so radical. You know, I could have done that. But if I had done that, I would have got the sack. <laughs> no more worky. Would have been all over. Folks, what I try to do at work, my ambition at work, my goal in work was primarily one thing. To come over to my boss and everyone in the department as a team player. I wanted everybody in my department to think, oh, you know, Adrian Holloway, he pulls for the team. His stuff always makes the bulletin. His stuff always makes air. I wanted everybody in the office to have a positive view. So what we're doing at work is by the way that we're doing our work, we are building up a big account in the bank of credibility. By the way that we do our job, So that when, as often happens, work-related social opportunities come around, like when it gets a bit warmer in a couple of months' time, and after work on a Friday, we go across the road, we loosen our ties, and we talk about what we're doing this weekend. Or when it's somebody's wedding, and you're hanging around waiting for the photos to be taken for hours. When um, somebody's leaving, do all of these occasions, because we built up this big account in the bank of credibility by the way we do our job, the people are curious. And so when they say, well, what are you doing this weekend? And you mention the church thing, they're curious. So they say, well, you know, come on, seeing as we've got the time, what what, what is this, you know, have you always been religious? What's what's this church thing? And so there's a way in that way. Our goal is to get people to be favorably disposed towards us by the way that we do our job. Final thing this morning is other people who we come into contact with, for example, neighbors. Folks, if you ever move house, 
make a big effort to say hello to your new neighbours. I would really encourage you to do that. Because even here in Oxford, it is still considered socially acceptable to say hello to a few neighbours when you move in. And so you just knock on a few doors around about and you simply say these words, Hello, I'm your new neighbour. I live at number such and such. And we're having a housewarming barbecue. Just wondered if you'd like to come. If you say those words, I promise you that no one will reply, and who do you think you are to merrily stroll across our road and impose your free food upon me? What gives you the right? No, they won't say that. How do I know they won't be offended? Because when we moved to Birmingham a few years ago, we did this, we knocked on a few doors. When we did the barbecue, I had a hundred people in my back garden. And you might say, yeah, but where are those 100 now? Where are they now? Well, okay, here's the truth. Of the 100, four did the Alpha course, of which one became a Christian. But you know, when we moved to London, we did the same uh, uh, thing again. I'll, I'll tell you about that in a second. But let me just say, when you, when you do the barbecue, the housewarming barbecue, um, I want to say, don't feel obliged to preach at the barbecue. Because it, uh, it is tempting. And obviously it's tempting. You want to, you know, you want to, you know, seeing as you've got everybody in your garden and you and your wife have been prayer walking the garden, claiming the ground, you know, in the name of Jesus. And you want to, because, you know, and then you think, hang on a minute, do you get up on a chair and think, oh, I could do a little quick little gospel visual aid and maybe get out a burger and then the ketchup. And then then I can do the ketchup. And so also was the blood of the Lord Jesus. Poured out for the rich. Then you want to build to a conclusion, get to the appeal, and then at the the appeal you want to say, right, now if you believe this good news, come to the grill, come to the grill, come to the grill, come forward, come forward now. And every night you go to bed with this vision of all your neighbours kneeling on your patio in repentance, holding their buns. And I want to say, you know, you can do that. You can preach in the barbecue. All I'm saying is you don't have to. It's like like an option. I'll, I'll leave it with you. But you know what? When we moved to London, we did the same thing, knocked on the neighbours' doors, invited them around. This guy called Chris, he's like three doors down the right-hand side. I saw him uh, yesterday, actually. He says to me, um, can I just tell you why I'm coming to your barbecue, Adrian? I said, uh, yeah, sure, Chris. He said, because I've lived in this road for 25 years and no one has ever done what you're doing. And I'm thinking, Chris, you know, to be honest, all it is is going down Fulham Palace Road to Tesco's Express and buying a few burgers and buns. I've lived in this road for 25 years. No one has ever done what you're doing. And when I hear this kind of stuff, I just think about that little verse tucked away in the book of Athens, in the book of Acts, when Paul's in Athens in Acts 17. And Paul's preaching away to the Athenians. And he says, God has determined the exact times and places where people should live. And he's done that so that they can reach out and find him because he's not far from each one of us. What that means is that my next door neighbour is supposed to be living next door to me. Let me tell you a quick story um, about my next door neighbour. I'll change her name because as it happens she's a barrister in the High Court in, in central London at the Old Bailey. And that's relevant to the story. One morning uh, she does something that all of us have done. I'll call her Fiona. And uh, she comes out of her house and she's got these two huge legal drag bags that she drags down the road every morning and it's the defence case for a, a, a trial that's in process at the Old Bailey. And she gets to the front door, it's our next door neighbour, and she for, she's forgotten something, her key or whatever, so she just leaves the bags there, goes back into her house, gets her key. By the time she comes back, 
the bags have gone. Yeah. And so she's in an absolute panic. You know, this trial is happening right now in court number such and such, and the defense case has just gone. You know, her bags have been stolen. She's in an absolute tiswas about this, as you can imagine. She's trying to find her mobile phone to phone the police. She's looking everywhere, no sign of the bags anywhere. So in a panic, she just rings on next door, which is our house, number 23. I wasn't home for this, but my wife, Julie, was home. Julie comes to the door, and Fiona's like, oh, Julie, Julie, I've lost my bags. My bags have been stolen. Have you seen my bags? And Julie's like, well, Fiona, no, I've been upstairs in the kids' bedroom. I, I'm really sorry. Um, and so um, Judy just wanders out into the street, and Fiona's trying to find her mobile phone. And um, Judy's standing in the street, and she's just in her mind, she's praying, uh, Lord, where are Fiona's bags? And she feels God say, look at the top of the street. So she looks up the top of the street, and our, our street's typical London terrace street, miles of parked cars, miles of terraced houses. Looks up the top of the street. She feels God say, you see that van at the top of the street? There's a, van, a white van at the very top of the street. She, sees the, she says, yeah. She feels God say, they're in the back of that van. So Julia just starts walking up the street like this. Now I have to say, if it had been me, after about a couple of steps, I would have thought, nah, (laughs) they're not going to be in the back of the van. But Julia's a much better Christian than me. So she walked all the way to the top of the street. She arrives at the top of the street, and lo and behold, there is a man sitting in the van, in the cabin. So she knocks knocks on the window, knocks on the window. You know, blokes, who's this funny woman, winds down his window, and Julia's like this. Have you got two bags in the back of your van that don't belong to you? And the bloke goes, Oh no, he says. I knew we shouldn't have nicked them. <laughs> and Julia says, Well, they belong to my friend. I think you should return them to her. And he goes, Oh no, I knew we shouldn't have nicked them. He gets out the van, goes round the back of the van, <laughs> opens up the double doors. There are the bags. Gets the bags down, puts up the drag handles. At this point, his mate was the one who'd actually nicked them. He'd been around the corner of the shop. He comes back from the shop. He sees that they've been discovered. And he says out loud, he says, oh no, he said, I knew he shouldn't have nicked them. They looked important. We thought we'd just nick them and find out later what was in them. You know, like you do. <laughs> and Julia says, well, they're not yours. I think you should return them to my friend. In fact, she's waiting outside her house right now. And so Fiona, by this time, has found her mobile phone. She's still standing outside our house. And she's dialing 999. And she looks up to her right to see these two huge men that she's never seen before dragging her bags with her next-door neighbour standing in front of them. And she's like... <laughs> and eventually, they come all the way back down the road. At this point, as, as, they, as the two ladies come back together again, the police arrive, they arrest the two guys, and Fiona is reunited with her precious bags. And as you can imagine, there is just one question that Fiona really wants to ask. She says, Julia, the one bit that I don't get is how did you know that they were in the back of that van all the way at the top of the street? And Julia says, well, Fiona, I think God told me. Well, as you can imagine, Fiona is now higher up the scale than she was. (laughs) One last thing. This is just a little anecdote. Um, as we, you know, at different stages of life, you have different opportunities. Right now, we've got these four children, age one, three, nine, and eleven. So for us, a big part of life is the school gate. You know, all the parents at the school gate. One day, I'm driving along in the car. Judy has just just been down the school to pick up the school to pick up the kids, and um, so we're driving along. And Judy says, "Oh, funny thing happened at the school gate today." She says, "I said, what was that?" And she says, "She mentions this mum that both of us know quite well." And she says, "Well, you know, so and so." I said, "Yeah." She said, so-and-so comes up to me and she says this to me, Julia says. She says, comes up to me and says, um, Julia, 
I hear you've been talking to some of the other mums and, you know, helping them. Julia says, yeah. This woman says, Julia, I think I need a session. (laughs) In fact, Julia, I think I need lots of sessions. And listen, Julia, I'm willing to pay. I'm driving along listening to this. And when my wife's telling me all this, I'm thinking, let me just get this right. Are you telling me that one of the mums from school is willing to pay you to witness to her? (laughs) Julia says, yeah. I said, that is fantastic. (laughs) I said, how much are you going to charge? Because as far as I'm concerned, that's got to be more than the minimum wage. (laughs) Anyway, we're we're out of time. Uh, Let me just... uh, Could you stand with me for a second? Let's close like this. Just to say this, I don't know if you thought about this, but in three years' time, uh, in 2014, uh, the World Cup is going to take place in Brazil. And I know it sounds ridiculous right now, but I absolutely guarantee you that in three years' time, by 2014, when the World Cup route comes around, everyone in this country will genuinely think that we are going to win the World Cup. (laughs) Even though we all know in our hearts that we're not, that we are going to be knocked out by Germany. (laughs) But let me just say with you, say this, If it were the case that England were to win the World Cup in 2014, which I agree is highly unlikely, if they did, heaven would not be celebrating. How do I know this? Because in Luke 15, Jesus says this, that the angels celebrate when one lost person comes back to God. So, England lift the World Cup, heaven is silent. But when the next person, through the life and ministry of Oxford Community Church, comes to know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Saviour, all heaven will erupt. Do you believe that? It's what Jesus believes about your church. Jesus believes that right now the angels are poised. This is what they celebrate. This is what gets them excited. This is for them the World Cup moment. And they're waiting. I wonder if it'll be that ministry. I wonder if it'll be that small group. Maybe it'll be through the main Sunday meeting. Maybe it'll be through the outreach. Maybe it'll be in the youth group. We, you know, they're waiting, poised for the next person who comes into this building and sits in one of these blue seats that's never been here before. Because one of you guys have communicated the gospel in your world. You've built relationship, you've built friendship. And through that bridge, you made it easy for that person to come and hear the gospel and come to know Jesus. Are you excited about that? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for, thank you for this amazing, liberating thing that you taught us that evangelism is a process. And I pray now for every single person who has felt like they've failed in this area, who's been disappointed with the results. In the name of Jesus... I lift off you disappointment. I lift off you the feeling of failure. And I thank you, Lord, that you've said that we are already successes in evangelism because evangelism is a process. And I thank you in advance for every single internet search that will be made this week to build a new friendship group. For every single evening class that someone who's listening to me right now will sign up for this week or this month. For everyone who'll do something they've always longed to do. For everyone who'll make a new friend and get to do something that they love to do. They'll do evangelism and have the time of their life where they're doing it. And I thank you, Lord, for every person who you know who you'll draw to this church and who will bow the knee to Jesus and who will have abundant life both in this life and in heaven forever. And in Jesus' name, we thank you for it. And everybody said... Amen. 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 God bless you and thank you for listening to me.